it's Ken White. And it's Josh Barrow, and this is Serious Trouble. Hello, Ken. Hello, Josh. So let's start this week by talking about Donald Trump and CNN and the CNN Town Hall, which was a notable event uh, on several dimensions. But the one that is most relevant for us here at Serious Trouble has to do with Donald Trump's comments about E. Jean Carroll. So fresh off losing a civil jury trial at at which a jury found by the preponderance of the evidence uh, that Donald Trump had sexually abused E. Jean Carroll and that he'd also defamed her by denying that he had done so. Donald Trump went on CNN and proceeded to deny again uh, that he had sexually abused E. Jean Carroll back in the 1990s. And so this has a lot of people discussing the possibility that she could sue Trump again. Uh, So first of all, is he liable again for defamation now by issuing the same denials that that a court previously awarded her a judgment because he issued? He is, and it's not mere idle speculation. Apparently, E. Jean Carroll has made comments to the effect that she ought to think about whether or not to sue him. Uh, Yes, it was more or less the same statements, the same denial of her accusations uh, in not exactly the same words, but fundamentally the same thing that the jury found was false and defamatory. And so if she sued him again, she would have an easier time of it because there's a a legal doctrine called preclusion uh, that might, in one of its variants, basically uh, turn into a court finding that those statements are false as a matter of law, that she doesn't have to relitigate the question of whether or not he's lying about her. She would have to relitigate the issue of damages, mm-hmm. and that would be difficult to show uh, under these circumstances where the his denial has been widely publicized before, along with the fact that a jury rejected it. Uh, but she would be probably entitled to at least uh, nominal damages, you know, a, a dollar or whatever, if she wanted to go that route. It would be hugely expensive, of course, and stressful. So not sure anyone would recommend it to her. But absolutely, she it's a, it's a repeat of the false statement that a jury found was false, and she can sue him for it. I realize that, you, that there would be a strong argument that there are not significant incremental damages here. But it, it's also possible for me to imagine a jury that has a negative view about Donald Trump, that has a negative view about Donald Trump's unwillingness to listen to the prior jury going out and doing the same thing he'd already been punished for. So is it conceivable in that case that a jury might actually award substantial damages in that situation? It's conceivable, but so compensatory damages are not a place where a jury's allowed to express that it's pissed off. You know, it's not a legitimate basis. She would have to put in evidence from which the jury could find that she suffered substantial incremental emotional distress or harm to her reputation or economic interests. Punitive damages could be another thing, but the trick there is that punitive damages usually have to be a relatively low multiple of the actual damages. So no no awarding a dollar and then $10 billion in punitives. Uh, So I, I think that any way you slice it, likely the damages picture here is probably smaller than the prior judgment, uh, but that may not be the interest she's attempting to vindicate. Mm-hmm. What about CNN's possible liability here? I saw a number of people saying, you know, CNN put Donald Trump on television knowing what he was likely to say when asked about Eugene Carroll. Is CNN potentially liable for broadcasting Donald Trump's statements, which a, a court has previously judged to have been lies? I would say potentially yes. And this is 
almost like a law school exam in its improbable string of facts. But as you said, you have someone coming on who is predictably going to say this. I mean, no one doubted that when uh, the moderator addressed him about it, he was going to say the same thing again. That was widely predicted. Uh, It seemed inevitable. And uh, CNN knew that a jury had just found that those statements were false and defamatory. So whether or not CNN knows it in some abstract philosophical sense, that his statements are false, they at the very least have very strong reasons to think they may be false, to doubt their truth. And that's what actual malice is. It's knowing it's false or reckless disregard about its truth or falsity. The harder question is, how can journalists, how can something like CNN or anyone covering a politician or a public figure, how can they handle that scenario uh, where a public figure is saying something and uh, it's news that they're saying, but you know it's false? How do you report it uh, without it being defamation? Well, but they don't know it's false. They, they know that a jury found by a preponderance of the evidence that it was false. But news networks publish statements all the time whose falsity is not strictly known to them. And furthermore, if you're covering a civil or a criminal dispute and you interview somebody who is a defendant in a, in a criminal dispute or a civil dispute, you may often have significant doubt about whether the person whose statement you're broadcasting is true or not. You certainly don't know that it's true. You might also even believe it's more likely than not to be false. There's all sorts of coverage of criminal cases that it would seem to me would would expose you to, to liability in the same way. I didn't think that in, in order to not have recklessly disregarded the truth, you don't have to know that everything you're broadcasting is true. Well, you don't have to know it's true, but you can't recklessly turn aside from indications that it's false. But can you turn aside from indications that it might be false? Well, that's a question for the jury, really, Uh, what kind of indications you can turn aside from. Actual malice is a high bar. But again, we're dealing with something that's almost like a law school exam. So the fact that a jury just found that it was false and defamatory- By the preponderance of the evidence. Is a pretty clear indication, at least, that if you ignore that, that you're- ignoring indications that is false. But CNN would, CNN would say we didn't ignore it. We pushed back immediately. We pointed out that a jury had just found him liable. And that is the tricky area. What can you do in hosting a public figure, a politician, and letting them say things? How do you defray your own potential liability for doing that? Is it enough to push back and say, but weren't you just found liable for doing that? Didn't a jury find that it was true. And that is not a completely clear question. Mm -hmm. I just, I I find the sort of the on stilts nature of this to not make very much sense to me because it's that the jury found that Donald Trump knew that his statements were false because they believed that he committed the acts that he was accused of, that he had direct personal knowledge of what he had done. In the Dominion case, if that had gone to trial, the arguments that Dominion would have advanced were about how basically the stories were so implausible and the evidence that, that had been presented to Fox made it such that no reasonable person could possibly think that the accusations against Dominion were true. And so here... All you have for CNN, it's not direct personal knowledge by CNN of what Donald Trump had done. And it's not something that comes to such a high evidentiary bar that CNN could not possibly have have believed or entertained the idea that Donald Trump 
did not sexually assault E. Jean Carroll. All it is is that they know that a jury found by a preponderance of the evidence that he had done so. And so you could, you know, you could think that the jury found that and they therefore that found that it was more likely than not, but that still holds up open the possibility that Donald Trump did not sexually assault E. Jean Carroll. Or you could have reasons to believe that the jury was incorrect. You could think that the jury was biased or, you know, you could have your own read of the evidence and, and feel a different way. I just find it really strange to get from a preponderance of the evidence ruling to it being incumbent, not just on CNN, but anybody making commentary on this, that they have to act like they are sure the jury was correct when even the jury itself is not making a claim of having been sure about what happened. Well, two things about that, Josh. First, I had to push back and disagree on your analysis of how Dominion would have proved its case. I think it would not have pushed so hard the idea that this stuff was implausible. I think it would have leaned more heavily on all the internal communications indicating that people at Fox knew that it was bullshit, understood that it was bullshit, and said it anyway. Also, the key difference between CNN and Fox is that CNN was not in the town hall basically endorsing what Trump was saying and suggesting that it was true. Whereas Dominion's claim was that the Fox people repeatedly presented the uh, election fraud stories about Dominion as if they were true, endorsed them and repeated them in a way that suggested they thought they were true. That's a key difference. But Josh, I think I think the, the issue is the fact that the jury doesn't necessarily establish a fact forever so that it can't be questioned. The trick is, what do they then do with it, I think? So the question is, what can a journalist or anyone then do in commenting on, in discussing with the public figure, something they are saying? And I think that's where the defense for someone like CNN is, is we didn't endorse it. They said it, and we pointed out, in fact, that you were found liable, right? Because here's the thing. Practically speaking, CNN would not want to go to trial and have its defense be that Eugene Carroll wasn't actually raped. So that's not a burden they want to take on. The question is going to be, we didn't say that. And us having a town hall with the lead candidate on the Republican side for president of the United States who says that is not the same as us broadcasting the statement as a fact. They would not also say that they don't know whether or not she was raped. I would assume that they would offer multiple defenses. Well, but I assume yeah. they wouldn't stipulate to the idea that they know exactly what happened at Bergdorf Goodman. Of course they won't, but that that's not the standard. It's either you knew that it was false or you showed reckless disregard as to its truth or falsity. And that second one doesn't require you knowing that it's false. So it would be E. Jean Carroll's burden at a trial against CNN to say, this is false because I was raped, which she successfully proved against Trump. Mm-hmm. And she'd have to say CNN was reckless in not really caring whether or not Trump's denial was true. And she would say that recklessness is reflected in the fact that they held the town hall immediately after the verdict and brought up the issue, encouraging him to talk about it, knowing that he would say the defamatory things again. Well, so I guess my, my question is what that recklessness standard looks like, because I all of the time, news channels will have people on to make claims about disputed matters where it is unknown to the news channel whether or not the claim is true. To be reckless, it has to be more than that you know it might be false, right? Well, you have to look aside from clear indications that it might be false. Um, But a verdict in the other direction is more than enough. 
under the standard for what reckless disregard is. That doesn't mean you can't talk about it. It, it's, it goes more to how you present it. So whether or not you are endorsing it or whether or not you are commenting and reporting on it. But so is is this actually a good law school hypothetical? I mean, you sort of laid out a defense that you would expect CNN to make there about how the, the reason that they were not reckless is that they contextualize that, that this was not their statement, that they they laid out how a jury had, had found differently. Would, you know, if, if E. Jean Carroll were to sue CNN over this, which she's given no indication that she's thinking about doing, she has talked about possibly suing Trump, would she have any chance in that lawsuit? Or do you think that defense that you laid out for CNN is a pretty strong one? I think it is a strong one, although not completely bulletproof. There's something called the fair reporting privilege that Fox tried to raise in the Dominion case that many jurisdictions have. And it's basically the idea that if you were just giving a fair report of the different contentions in a dispute without endorsing them, then that is not defamatory, even if one of the claims in that dispute is false. So they would probably try to use that idea. She would probably say, this is different because uh, they knew that a jury had just found that it was false, and they brought him on deliberately seeking to get him to say incendiary things for ratings. Uh, and it was not a fair and neutral report. So, but I think that's an uphill battle for her. But it is a colorable argument. So, is, uh, is there not a First Amendment problem if you can build upon again a, a civil jury verdict that is by the preponderance of the evidence in order to effectively prohibit certain categories of statements? Because I mean, the my understanding is that the reason that we have defamation law is that there's supposed to be no First Amendment right to false statements; that those are unprotected. But a statement that goes contrary to a jury verdict in a civil trial will be true some substantial percentage of the time. And we're basically making it impossible for people to broadcast statements that, that would be contrary to a civil jury verdict. Isn't that, isn't that sweeping up certain true statements? We don't know which of them are true statements. But sweeping them up and making, the, making them punishable by law, that doesn't create a First Amendment problem? Not the way you express it, Josh, because ultimately the court system relies on jury verdicts to resolve disputes. And even if we think the jury sometimes gets it wrong, which they certainly do, ultimately jury verdicts can be binding. They can certainly be binding on Trump. So there's even a possibility that Eugene Carroll could, in this case, get some sort of injunction against Trump prohibiting him from making certain narrow statements. Now, that's a prior restraint. It's almost never permitted. But there's a somewhat cloudy area of law where if you win a defamation case, maybe in some circumstances, you can get a narrow injunction telling that person you beat, he can't say that thing again. Uh, similarly, uh, Trump can be hit with issue preclusion. Next time she sues him, he doesn't get to defend the statement again, probably. She gets to say it's a matter of law. This is, this is false because this is a contest between me and him, and a jury's already determined that. So we already have a system where, yes, a jury's preponderance of the evidence finding can wind up restricting people's speech. The problem you're pointing to is the much more complicated one about what about third parties, not the two parties to the dispute. And that's where you get to the cloudier area of law as what's the difference between reporting on the dispute and um, endorsing uh, one side of the dispute. So I, I think there's no question that journalists can say, as many have, after the verdict, Trump continued to maintain that the allegations were untrue, that he didn't rape her. 
You can report that. That's a fair and true reporting. The question is whether you can showcase, promote, endorse what uh, the person is saying and where is the line between fair reporting and showcasing, promoting, endorsing a statement. And what I think E. Jean Carroll would say is that CNN put Trump on to say exactly what they expected him to say for ratings and that they, in effect, endorsed, promoted, supported his statements by doing what they did. I don't know it's a winning argument, but I think it gets past a motion to dismiss and it might even get past summary judgment. Let's talk about George Santos. Uh, George Santos indicted on a, a big boy federal felony. So first of all, congratulations, George Santos. He was arraigned uh, outside the Aldamato Court, or he was arraigned in the Aldamato Courthouse out on Long Island in, in Suffolk County. Didn't even get to be arraigned in New York City. And then he gave this press conference that he really appeared to quite enjoy after his arraignment. It, look, it looks like he was having fun here. It really does. But in a way that is simultaneously infuriating and a little sad. So on the one hand, he's clearly enjoying his notoriety, completely unrepentant, doesn't think he's done anything wrong, calls out a witch hunt, and is mad that they moved so quickly. Uh, so why did this only <laughs> take four months? And the answer is, of course, because you're a complete dipshit. You did everything in the clumsiest, easily detectable way possible. <laughs> and this is you were low-hanging fruit. But there's also – there was kind of like a – a bittersweet naivete to the whole presentation. He he had sort of like he was like the 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 big uh, fresh faced sweet Midwestern kid in the World War II movie who you know is going to take a bullet to the head, uh, <laughs> and um, he just seemed completely unprepared for what the federal criminal justice system is going to do to him. And of course, Josh, I, I'm pretty sure I've covered this before in my role, mm -hmm. not giving press conferences. Yeah, I think that was already on the list. Yeah, I think it was too. But no press conferences where when you're being indicted, among other things, for unemployment benefits fraud, no going on and saying, well, during the pandemic, it wasn't very clear and making comments about your state of mind <laughs> uh, and locking yourself in on defenses on that fraud. But yes. I, I wouldn't expect anything less from George Santos. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the during the pandemic, it wasn't very clear is kind of a funny thing, because I think what he really means there is during the pandemic, a lot of people committed unemployment insurance fraud. And that right. is definitely true. Um, but that's different from it being unclear that you were not allowed to claim unemployment benefits while you were employed. Well, exactly. I do have to give him this. I've watched his press conference several times, and I, I feel fairly confident in saying that he did not commit any new federal crimes in the course of the press conference. Wow. And I, I feel that's progress for him. Yeah. Well, so and then you were saying he was complaining that this is going too fast. When might this? Oh, you said if he insists on his speedy trial rights, he could go to trial in about three months. Do we have a sense of what that timeline is actually likely to look like? It's probably going to be longer. It doesn't seem as if he is um, going to try to go with the move of let's push it to trial fast as possible. Under the uh, Federal Speedy Trial Act, uh, in theory, you have to go to trial within 70 days of, of your indictment uh, or your first appearance on your indictment. Uh, it's almost always pushed out. Uh, often in white-collar cases, it's pushed out a dramatic amount of time. A judge can push it out even the defendant doesn't want to, but that starts to get into risky areas where you can get overturned on appeal. Some people use the strategy, let's force the government to go to trial immediately. I don't think that would be a good strategy here because this isn't a case where anything was subtle or uh, I, I suspect he, he left a trail. Um, he's hired a New York attorney, an ex-cop uh, who was a Republican candidate for office 
who appears to have some but modest amount of federal criminal experience. Uh, it seems like more a political choice or, or sort of a vibe choice than uh, the choice you'd want to make. But yeah, he can try to push it fast to trial, but the move here would usually be sit back, get all the discoveries, see what you can do. It, it's funny because if you if you make a list of the categories of people who hate George Santos the most right now, like people who are institutionally involved in New York Republican politics might be at the top of the list. Like I might have thought it would be more likely that you would find a former Democratic candidate willing to support him as compared to you, the, the people with the most vicious comments in the press about George Santos are always the other Republican congressmen from Long Island who find him very embarrassing. Well, and that's kind of why the investigation went so fast, because there's something fundamentally angering, something, something that gets the system upset about being a grifter in an unsubtle way. You got to grift <laughs> properly. You, you got to be a crook in a stand-up kind of way with plausible deniability. And when you're just out there grifting on the floor in front of everybody, that just makes everybody look bad. And so they want to hammer you really fast. Let's talk about Nina Jankowitz, uh, who briefly ran the briefly existing Disinformation Governance Board within the Department of Homeland Security, which, despite its Orwellian-sounding name, was apparently supposed to coordinate existing anti-disinformation efforts uh, within federal agencies and advise them about how to best combat disinformation and purportedly actually trying to find ways to protect civil liberties, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, they announced this board. It becomes a pet hate on Fox News and Nina Jankowitz's uh, clips of, of her musical theater hobby, including in one instance singing this sort of unfortunate song about disinformation to the tune of supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. Uh, she becomes famous in, an, in a negative way on Fox News. The government puts pause on the board. She ends up resigning from DHS. She's now suing Fox News and Fox Corporation for defamation, saying that all of this, the hundreds of times that she was talked about on Fox News, that at least some of those instances she was defamed in a way that damaged her reputation and her uh, professional uh, standing, and that also led to her receiving threats and the like, uh, that, that, you know, this was all due to Fox lying about her. And therefore, she's suing them for defamation. She's suing them in state court in Delaware. What sort of prospects does she have? I mean, because this is coming off the Dominion, even though Dominion didn't go to trial, uh, there's a lot of other people who feel wronged in the way that they were discussed on Fox News. And this is this is sort of the first of these high profile lawsuits that we're seeing trying to see, you know, are there going to be more instances where Fox not only is, you know, is, is accused of being unfair and biased, but the, the, the idea is that they actually committed actionable defamation for which somebody could receive money damages. Well, she, as you said, sued in Delaware state court. So the first important thing is that Delaware's anti-slap statute is awful. So that makes it hard to attack any defamation claim in the first instance. You can only use a motion to dismiss, uh, which is much less useful of a tool. The anti-slap statute, for, for listeners who are not familiar, is a law that is basically intended that if you sue for defamation over speech that is, in fact, constitutionally protected, it's supposed to be a statute that helps the defendant, in this case Fox News, get it out of court quickly and maybe even recover attorney's fees from you because you wasted their time by taking them to court. 
Exactly. And so what an anti-slap uh, motion lets you do that you can't normally do is contextualize all the stuff that the plaintiff is complaining about. Say uh, she's taking these statements out of context. Here's the full transcript of the episode. Here's the full advertisement, whatever it is. And you can see in context, this was all commentary and opinion, which you can't do normally with just a motion to dismiss, which relies on the four corners of the complaint. So Fox can't use that tool against her. The the strategy of the complaint, I think, kind of reflects that. The complaint is deliberately mixes up uh, statements of fact and statements of opinion. So a lot of what Fox was doing, maybe not all, but certainly a lot, is political rhetoric, trash talking, opinion, commentary, protected stuff. I mean, there's uh, a list of things in here, like they referred to her as Miss TikTok meets America's Got No Talent, Minister of Truth, Scary Poppins, a yeah. useful idiot. Those are those are all opinions. Yeah, th that's all just shit talking, and that's protected by the First Amendment. There are relatively few comments they call out that are potentially provably false statements of fact. Probably the preeminent one is the allegation that uh, she was fired as opposed to resigning. But they also say that um, she wanted to censor the tweets and social media statements of Americans, and she wanted to give other people the power to do that. Those are more on the line because they can be interpretations of the mission of the organization. So I, I, I think it's a tough case, but she gets the Dominion halo. She gets like everyone thinks Fox is completely full of shit and dishonest. She gets that boost. I think she gets past a motion to dismiss, and I think she has a credible way to, to drag this out for a while. This all really, I mean, the root of this, and I have to make a disclosure, Josh, and that is that Ali Mayorkas, who's the head of Homeland Security was my boss uh, uh -huh. more than 20 years ago, 25 years ago. And I think he's a good guy, but I think the way they ruled out this program was uh, dumb. Uh, I think that this reaction uh, from Fox and others was fairly predictable and they should have uh, seen it coming and they should have uh, spun this and structured it in a way that it wasn't so susceptible to these fantastical stories. But a lot of this is just bullshit spin doctoring of a government program that is opinion commentary rather than false statements of fact. So she may maybe have a couple of core false statements of fact in there, but it's going to be an uphill battle to get there. Well, here's here's my con concern about this and the, you know, the the spin nature of it. So the, there's there's sort of there's three categories of claims that she says are, are false statements of fact that she's suing over. And two of those I want to set aside for now. One is that she was fired rather than having resigned. And the other has to do with this specific Twitter feature that ultimately became what's called community notes, where you have these sort of Wikipedia style entries adding context below tweets that people post. And she gives a presentation where she's talking about this and they, some of the people talking about her on Fox News misinterpreted or misrepresented her, her presentation there to suggest that she was proposing that she and other users should be able to edit non-verified users' tweets on Twitter. So those are some specific claims where, you know, and, and Ken and I talked about this offline before the show, that, you know, there, there might be some issues with, with demonstrating actual malice there, and there also might be some issues with, with demonstrating that she was damaged specifically by those statements. I mean, was Nita Jankowitz's reputation 
reputation really specifically damaged by the claim that she was fired, or was it more damaged by these these arguments about that she was trying to you know be the this censorship overlord? And so you you have those specific statements. But the third set of statements that she's describing as as false statements of fact are statements that she broadly wished to censor people, or that this board that she was running would be out there censoring people. And what they keep laying out is that the board would have had no direct legal powers to do any sort of censorship, and that the purpose of the board they purport was actually to, to operate to protect civil liberties and that sort of thing and to coordinate among government agencies. But the thing is that the efforts, at least some of the efforts of those government agencies that were existing, involved interfacing with social media companies to flag certain things that the government wished the social media companies to take action on. And, and generally, the idea was that the government was pointing out things that were in violation of the existing policies of those social media companies. So the, the idea is not that the government is going out and, you know, saying, you know, please take this tweet down. We don't like it. It's that the government is saying this tweet violates this aspect of your terms of service. Please enforce your terms of service. Now, there are, there are a lot of disputes. There are disputes both about, you know, whether the government was really holding to the four corners of that or whether it was trying to get information taken down that was not, in fact, violating terms of service at, at, at social media companies. And there's a lot of concern about whether the government was basically imposing undue influence on those social media companies. I don't want to get deep into that dispute. I, I, all I'm pointing out is that this was a very real and live policy dispute. And that when a lot of, especially conservatives, talk about the idea that the government is censoring people, they're talking about exactly that sort of activity. They're saying the government is leading on, leaning on these social media companies to take actions that, that promote uh, messages that are favored by the government and that disfavor messages that the government doesn't like. They don't like that sort of activity. And they had a reasonable suspicion that this board was going to be involved in coordinating and encouraging that sort of activity among government agencies, even if it wasn't doing that itself. So while, you know, a lot of the, the statements that were made about about Nina Jankowitz and her board were, were overheated, and some of them were, you know, were, were sort of were jumping the gun on certain things. It was people speculating and expressing opinions about a function of the government, a policy function of the government. And the idea that you could then take people to court over that and say, you know, that's defamatory because you said I, you know, you said this board was going to do bad censorship things. And in fact, the board was not going to do bad censorship things. That seems not just like a dispute of opinion, but it's like it's core political speech. It's what, you know, it's what our, you know, our our system, what the First Amendment exists to protect is so that people can argue over these sorts of things. And so when Fox News claimed in the Dominion lawsuit that these sorts of lawsuits were going to make it impossible to cover disputes of the day, it seems like this is exactly the sort of thing that they were talking about. Yeah, it, uh, I think you're right that it is core political speech. I mean, the heart of American political dialogue is the concept that if you want to make a tiny obscure change to some obscure facet of tax policy, you want my children to starve to death and be eaten on the streets by unpedigreed dogs. That's the way American discourse works. We always kind of take it to the extreme and the parade of horribles and, you know, you want this extreme outcome that I imagine happening as a result of these policies. It's not really susceptible to provably false or true. It's more of an emotive right. statement. Uh, well, and, so, and, it's, and it's a it's a prediction. It yes. is a, it's a forecast. It's speculation. Those are all protected categories of speech. So it's very typical in free speech areas for the dialogue to go like, if, if you want to create this small area uh, where we're going to restrict speech a little bit more. You ultimately want jackbooted thugs going into people's houses and arresting them for political speech. Or 
alternatively, if you oppose this small measure, you know, you support the Nazis ask, calling for a new genocide. It's, it's the same type of dialogue. It's stupid. It's unbecoming to America, but it's absolutely core political speech. And unless they can show that there are misrepresentations of some fact about what she did, or perhaps what she said, that really goes to the core of a fact as opposed to an impression, an interpretation of the goal of the program, that type of thing, then I think that one is really uh, an uphill battle for her. Because I, I, the dispute over whether these statements about the board were not merely unfair, but were tantamount to false statements of fact, I could imagine an extremely similar dispute over the don't say gay law in Florida. Oh, sure. Where you had a number of, you know, the defenses of that law in some cases pointed out that it did not literally make it illegal to say gay, even in a classroom. Some, though not all, of the predictions about the effects of that law were overheated, and many of them were speculative. It was basically saying, here's a law, and there are four corners of the law says it only does these things, but we believe it is in fact going to have these larger effects. It's a similar speculation. The speculation might be correct, it might be incorrect. But you could you could imagine a similar lawsuit brought by Ron DeSantis or supporters of his against people who termed this the don't say gay law because they would say, you know, these literal claims they made about what the law did, those claims were not true and it damaged my reputation, blah, blah, blah. I don't think that sort of lawsuit should win, but it's a very similar theory to what Nina Jankowitz has here regarding the claim specifically about was this board here to censor people? Yes. And there, and there ha- I mean, during COVID, uh, there were all sorts of accusations of defamation flying back and forth based on the overheated rhetoric in both directions. There have been suits in political circumstances where someone says you're exaggerating or you know, you're lying because you talk about what you think the consequences of this law will be. It's terrible. It's very chilling to political speech. I can understand why people are sympathetic to her because they did make her like the subject of hate to whip up ratings and, and viewers. And they did know that she would get savaged for it and threatened and all sorts of horrible people would go after her. So you can, you can feel sympathetic. But I, I think on this point, uh, it's pretty clearly protected speech. What about the narrower matters? Like, so she was not fired from the Department of Homeland Security, although her, her job was sort of eliminated. Like she could have stayed there in some function, but the, the thing that she was hired there to do, they were not going to do it anymore. And she ended up resigning for some combination of reasons to do with the fact that, you know, she was receiving this, you know, these threats that she found very disturbing and the thing that she'd been hired to do at DHS, they were no longer pursuing the vision that, that she wanted them to. And so sometimes Fox correctly described her as having resigned. Uh, at least one in one instance, they said that she was fired. In another instance, they said that she was booted. And it seems to me that, you know, if someone wasn't fired, but the, the thing they were hired to do, they decide not to do anymore, you could say that they had been booted from the organization, even though they weren't fired. Is she likely to prevail on a claim around that? Because it seems to me both that, you know, it could be people make factual mistakes all the time. They talk, And specifically, they talk imprecisely about the circumstances in which people leave jobs. Right. Can you win on a defamation claim because, you know, a, a couple of times they said she was fired rather than that she resigned? Well, I don't think they can win on booted because it's an imprecise term that could encompass something like, you know, we eliminated your position or during all yeah. this controversy. Um, fired could be a provably false statement of fact, but there are a few problems with it. Firstly, it's going to be in context of all the statements taken together. Uh, and it's going to be hard to trace damages, I think, to that particular statement as opposed to all the stupid outrage over what she was actually doing that they were misrepresenting. Uh, but I mean, it could technically be defamation. 
How is this lawsuit likely to proceed in your view? You were saying that you think that she can get past a motion to dismiss? Right. So the motion to dismiss, remember, is just uh, on the four corners of this complaint, not looking at anything else. Is this legally sufficient? assuming everything in it is true. So I think she gets past that. I think they take discovery. I think they try probably try to get summary judgment and go with some of these theories. And, you know, uh, Fox is, uh, you know, they're behind the eight ball. They, they have a terrible reputation in this sector on defamation. Everyone's going to be thinking about that. Everything's, everyone's going to be thinking about them paying out $750 million. And so I think that, that it's, it's not going to be easy for them, but I think they ultimately win in a long slog or they settle. Well, so, I mean, the, two, I have two questions about that. One, first of all, discovery was a huge problem for Fox in the Dominion lawsuit. And, and to, to a significant extent, the discovery was a problem even when it wasn't about matters that specifically created legal liability for them in the Dominion case. Right. You had internal communications that were embarrassing for a variety of reasons that became public through that process. So I assume in discovery, they would look for statements in which people expressed that they knew that Nina Jankowitz wasn't doing the things they were accusing her of. I, first of all, I suspect they won't find that. I think this is different from Dominion that I think that, you know, a lot of the a lot of the personalities who went on and said things about Jankowitz that were either literally false or that were overheated, I think we're probably going to find that they literally believed those things in part because they didn't do deep research in the way that they might have on certain other things. The stakes here were not as high as they were with, with the Dominion matter. Right. So I don't know that they will find legally useful things in that discovery, although who knows. But you could conceivably have things that then, you know, become a problem for Fox for, for other reasons that are, you know, we don't know exactly what they were talking about and exactly how that could damage the, the company's reputation there. So I assume that would be a reason to try to avoid discovery. On the other hand, if you start paying out settlements to everyone who feels that they were treated unfairly on Fox, even if those people probably can't prove a defamation case, you could end up paying out a lot of settlements to people who would not win against you in court. You could. And, um, well, I mean, that's the cost uh, maybe of, of doing business that way. And, yeah, they don't want to go through another big round of ugly discovery. I think I agree with you that uh, there's not likely to be a smoking gun, you know, none of this bullshit we're saying about her is true type stuff like there was with Dominion. I think that it could plausibly be stuff saying, let's punch this up a little bit, put it this way instead of that way, that type of thing. Um, I think there could be embarrassing stuff, and I think there could be a lot of collateral embarrassing stuff like we saw in Dominion, you know, Tucker Carlson saying horrible things about people and and so forth. And the question is, how much does Fox want to avoid going through that, avoid the disruption of uh, discovery and putting its people through depots and that type of thing versus how much do they have to think about going forward? We can't be paying out settlements all the time. I think that uh, I think that's a good place to leave it this week. There's another piece of litigation that we don't really know what to do with yet, which is why we didn't address it this week, which is this this remarkable lawsuit against Rudy Giuliani that you've probably read about on the Internet. Yeah, er everyone wants us to, but we're not going to do it this week. Yes, we're uh, we're going to we're going to digest this a little bit, watch a little bit more news coverage come in. And uh, we will we will say something about that, including Rudy appears to be representing himself in this case, which, uh, Ken, is that a good idea? I, I do not see how that could possibly go badly, Josh. <laughs> so that and, and more will come up next week. But uh, th thank you for joining us this week, as always. Serious Trouble is created and produced by Very Serious Media. That's me and Sarah Fay. Jennifer Swadek mixed this episode. Our theme music is by Joshua Mosier. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with more soon. See you next time. <laughs>